If you have your Bible, let's turn to Exodus chapter 15 this morning. Exodus 15. We took a couple of Sundays out of Exodus. We looked at Psalm 118 when we connected it to the triumphal entry. It's the song that was sung when Jesus marched into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. It was the song that Jesus sang on the night of the Passover. And then last week we studied as connecting to the resurrection, the, the, the story of the road to Emmaus. Two disciples of Christ met him but didn't know that they were meeting him as he opened the scriptures to them and pointed to them that all the scripture points to Christ. And so today as we return to chapter 15 of Exodus, we're coming back to where we were on April 3rd. In chapter 14, there's this massive event, which really is the pinnacle of deliverance in the Old Testament. It's the Red Sea parting. God's people walk through on dry ground. God's enemies are crushed under the weight of water. And the Lord reigns victorious over those enemies. What we're about to see today is something that's really common in the Scriptures. And that is an event will be recorded in narrative form. And then after it, there's a song which is sung, a declaration of the beauty and the wonder of what has occurred. We don't really do that in our own lives, do we? Uh, And yet, it's probably something that we need to learn to recover and recognize as wonderful. So here's God's word, Exodus 15, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who's like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They have trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh God, we recognize as we come to your word that we are studying a song which your, your people sang on the salvation side of the Red Sea. We pray, O oh God, that you would grant to us today the ears to hear the beautiful richness of your glory, that you would open our ears to hear what you would have us to hear and know and understand. Father, we also ask that you'd be willing to use the mouth of an unclean man who dwells among a people of unclean lips, that you would use this mouth and this person to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So many preachers over the years have told this story that it has developed so many different renditions that I'm pretty sure that it's not a true story. But it's probably a story that should be true. In one version, a little girl is sitting in her Sunday school class in a pretty liberal church. And her teacher, who evidently drew the short end of the straw and thought himself too smart to be teaching children, is mostly going through the motions when he comes to the story of the Red Sea and its parting. And as he told the story, this little girl in the back of the room stands up and she says, she says Praise God! And the skeptical teacher says, for what? Well, for delivering his people through the deep waters of the Red Sea. The teacher who was far more impressed with his knowledge or presumed knowledge than he was with the child's precious faith decided he'd use this opportunity to explain his doubts about the exodus. Well, you know little one that uh, the children of Israel, they passed through the northern part of the Red Sea. It's really marshy. It really wasn't the Red Sea. It's, it's called the Sea of Reeds or the Sea of Papyrus. I mean, it's shallow. Six to ten inches of water at most. The girl stands up again. Wow, praise the Lord. That's even better. What are you talking about, Sally? It's not a miracle. They walked around in a shallow spot of water, and she refuses to sit down. She stands up again. Praise God. Sally, yes, praise God, because our Lord drowned the armies of Egypt in six inches of water. That's a bigger miracle than I thought. I mention that, of course, because so many of us are more like the unbelieving teacher than we are like the child of faith. I don't mean to suggest that we don't believe the Scriptures. The Bible is God's Word. Most of us believe that, that God really did deliver His people through the deep waters of the Red Sea as they were parted. And then Pharaoh's armies came in after them, and it was God who released the waters and destroyed these enemies. We all believe that. It's the zeal that we're lacking. 
It's the zeal of a child who would stand up in the middle of a Sunday school class and say, praise God. So I wonder if God's deliverance, his acts of salvation at the Red Sea rightly moves your sometimes cold, chilly heart to the places of zeal and rejoicing, to the place where it really ought to be. Exodus 15 tells us that we have a lot to learn in this regard. Salvation always demands a response. And here's what it means. It means that God's people eventually come to the place where they get over themselves. They get, they get over their petty insecurities. They get over their past stuffy tendencies. And they say, I, I, I now have a zeal to worship and honor the Lord. And so this passage teaches us that we are called to worship. We must be content to be troubled and then finally confident in the future. First, we're called to worship. Uh, You recognize, don't you, that there were no original chapter breaks in the passage. And so people came along afterward and broke the passage up for us. But it needs to be reclaimed. Look at verse, the last part of chapter 14. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then immediately, chapter 15, verse 1, Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed mightily. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. And the order of this is essential. First, God saved his people from the enslaving enemy. And then second, they realized or they saw that God had delivered them personally. And third, that moved them to fear the Lord, to revere him and worship him. They trusted him for his salvation. And finally, here you have them on the salvation side of the Red Sea and they're singing for his glory. You see, the Hebrew people, and we've said this a lot, the Hebrew people were saved for God's glory. And you and I in Christ have likewise been saved for God's glory. And so when the Holy Spirit removes the scales from your eyes and you begin to recognize his salvation, and then you place your faith in the Lord, then the only right response is really to sing for his glory, to live for his glory. If you follow along in our order of worship each week, this is the reason that our worship service, like so many other rich, reformed worship services and orders of worship, moves from a confession of sin to a declaration of God's deliverance in Christ to an utter and complete assurance of pardon, and then to the act of singing. As Josh said, the only right response is to stand and sing. And I didn't invent this. And John Calvin didn't invent this. God invented it. And so if our worship service seems to you, to your eyes and to your ears, to be a little unusual, to be perhaps stiff and wooden, stay and watch and sit and see and listen And notice that the Lord moves you from an explanation of the gospel to the certainty of God's grace to you in Christ. And notice that you then become captured by the deliverance of God and moved to a heart of singing. And who did they sing to? 
Verse 1, to the Lord. They didn't sing to their neighbor. They didn't sing as a performance to the congregation for everyone to notice their talent. They directed their voices to the one who redeemed them. The text says, I will sing to the Lord for this reason. Here's my motive. And that is that his victory proves his majesty. Finally, verse 1 introduces the theme of the song. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. It's a theme we're not totally comfortable with. Philip Ryken was the young pastor who took the place of James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. As you know, many of you know, Dr. Boyce died of cancer. And Ryken records some of the things that Boyce was preaching on near the end of his death. One of those was congregational singing. And he describes music as a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and his truth in meaningful and memorable ways. In fact, it's a case for our hearts joining with our minds to say, yes, yes, yes. This is the truth that I embrace. That's what God's people are doing on this side of the Red Sea. They're declaring, yes, I've seen God's power and his glory demands my voice. Listen to the personal pronouns of verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Presbyterians like me are often very uncomfortable with personal pronouns. So if someone was to pass a song like this across my desk, I might go, well, I don't know, there's too many personal pronouns. In other words, I'm smarter than the Scripture is. We shouldn't think we are. Of course, the words hearken back to the burning bush. When Yahweh introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and every act of God from those ten plagues to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to drowning Pharaoh's armies was meant to move God's people from those stories, those distant memories that they'd heard about their great-great-grandfather Abraham to a place where they could say, I've embraced Yahweh. He is my God And your Bible calls this the song of Moses. But you know, don't you, everyone is singing. Two million voices on this side of the Red Sea join together. They lift their voices in praise to God. And we wonder, now how did they get the words printed out? How did they get the lyrics in everybody's hands? How did they get the music tuned so that everybody could hear it and, and it carried appropriately? When you see songs like this that are sung in the scriptures, it is almost certain that a a, a leader, a, a singer, or several singers sing a line and they respond by repeating the very same line. And you can imagine the chorus of what it sounded like as the people echoed these words. And some of you, like me, walked through this psalm and thought, I don't know, it's a little long. I think I've kind of forgotten what the what this was about. They did not forget. 
It's a song for everyone. You know, don't you, the men are singing. You jump to the end of the passage and you also notice uh, we, we meet a woman that we've not met before. Moses and Aaron's sister, her name is Miriam. And in verse 20, she, she takes a tambourine in hand and, and all the women joined with her with tambourines and dancing, verse 21, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Salvation demands a response. And so both men and women are saved. Both men and women are called to worship. Therefore, both men and women are singing. I want to give you just a few applications from this text. This is one of the reasons we do systematic expository preaching. I would never come up with this kind of application on my own, right? I would talk about the three or four favorite things that bother me. The text demands that you do something else, though. Look, the first application is you are not the audience for worship songs, And surely of the two million people that are included in this song, some people were not good singers. But if you are the audience of worship and you don't like your own voice, then you won't sing. But if God is the audience of worship, and let's be clear, in the church, God is always the audience of worship, even if modern churchgoers don't know that. You're not the audience. And since God's the audience, you sing. You sing in spite of how your voice sounds. God's the audience. And your vocal talent is not relevant to the audience. Second application is really an application for, for men, I think. Sometimes I've noticed in churches that men don't sing as freely as women sing. And I've heard a lot of reasons for this, and maybe you have too. I don't sing because I don't have a very good voice. I don't sing because I can't read music. I can't follow along or I can't hit the notes. I'm not even totally sure. I'm pretty sure I heard someone at one point say to me, I don't sing Because I'll leave that to my wife. I think men don't sing in church for at least two reasons. One is laziness. And the other is insecurity. I was handing out bulletins at my church in Birmingham as as Case dragged himself up the stairs outside the church. Hey, Case, how's it going this morning? Handed him the bulletin. He looked at me and goes, well, I don't really feel like being here today. I just don't think I can do church this morning but I'm here he passed me by and I sat there for a moment I thought I can I can relate to that sentiment there's just times you don't really want to come to church you don't really feel like you have the energy and so later that morning thinking that I'd heard something that was pretty novel I shared this same conversation with an older deacon and this deacon suddenly got fired up And he said, that's why you come to church. Because everything in your flesh says, stay at home. Everything in your flesh says, stand at the back and hide and don't get noticed and don't sing and just watch the service. It's classic masculine laziness. That's what he said to me. 
And 20 years later, I still remember the phrase. Classic masculine laziness. And then he said, you don't come here to do church. You come here to worship the God of glory. And you get the privilege of joining in a heavenly procession. And his response was so pointed that I winced for a moment and I remembered it for the rest of my life. Case and I stand appropriately corrected. The issue of masculine laziness has been confronted. I think quite often men do not sing in church for two reasons. One is laziness, the other is insecurity. And as I mentioned, I've heard guys say things like, well, I leave the singing to my wife. She has a prettier voice. And what they really are saying is I sort of think that singing is feminine. Let's be really clear. In God's creation design, when a man sings to God, it is a pre-fall taste of what he was intended to be in God's design. In fact, it's a glimpse of strength and honor that was endowed to him by his creator. It is a Christ-centered response of humility to the one who redeemed you. Genesis, excuse me, Exodus 15, 1 and 2, singing is very masculine. Exodus 15, 20 and 21, singing is perfectly feminine third application. Singing and worship moves your heart from the cold stuffiness that it often suffers with to a place of genuine zeal. From what you would normally be in your fleshly complacency to a spirit-inspired Godward posture. God has saved you from your sins in Christ. He's called you to worship Him. And this is perhaps the one time of the week that you will stop singing a song of self. That you will get over your own self-exaltation and your own self-centeredness and your own self-worship. And you are made to look Godward and to sing Godward. It is good for your mouth and your heart to sing to the Lord in worship. Because sometimes you feel like it and sometimes you don't. And to join your voices with the other voices around you is to move your heart into what it means to be the communing body of Christ. And the whole body looks upward to the head and lifts you to where you ought to be. To the Christ-centered place that God made you to be. Salvation always demands a response. We're called to worship. We're also meant to be content, to be troubled. The Song of Moses celebrates an aspect of God's character that we would otherwise miss. In fact, it's an aspect of God's character that many might feel uncomfortable with. I suspect peace-loving modern Christians don't know what to do with language like verse 3. What does it say? The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Wait, I've been taught my whole life that this is a God of peace. How can he be described as a man of war? You need to consider that the character of God 
as it is listed in its attributes, must be understood in the broad context of the whole song. And this particular aspect is one single note in the whole song. If you stay on this note as your only primary note, the song won't work. As a wrathful God, all he does is crush people. But if you place this aspect of God in the broader context of Scripture, then suddenly you have a concert of notes that are being played from the pages of God's Word that exalt Him for various aspects of His character. And so if you play just one note, you miss who He is. Here's what I mean. The song portrays the destruction of human life as if it is a mighty act of God. It's poetic and it's graphic. Look at verse 1. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. Skip down to verse 4 and 5. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk into the sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Verse 6, your right hand shatters the enemy. Verse 7, you send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. And you and I passed through this psalm and we went, yeah, ho-hum. Like this is graphic language. And then there's a repetition. Do you remember the word simile is from your English class in elementary school? Comparing something with like or as. The simile in the passage amplifies the destruction of human life. Verse 5, 10, and 16. When the floods covered the Egyptian armies, they went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 10, you blew your wind, Lord. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 16, God's enemies are described as still as a stone. Before we proceed, we must acknowledge that the original audience was not bothered by what troubles the modern reader today. How come? Why were they not bothered and we are? Well, first of all, they also knew that the enemy was not a three-year-old little girl holding a baby doll and licking a lollipop. The enemy is Pharaoh. He is a slave master of the worst order, and the word killer hardly even begins to touch who he was. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. This is not a battle against a sweet, sinless enemy. And it's that wicked sin aspect that modern readers would so quickly gloss over and miss. You have an enemy that is far more wicked than Pharaoh. Satan is described in the scriptures as a liar and a thief. The Bible says that he came to kill and steal and destroy. Destroy who? Destroy the good works of God and destroy God's own children. Parents. Would you be content with such a killer living next door to you? And so Christians uncomfortable with what they read in the Old Testament, unsure how to reconcile these passages have wrongly said, well, this is how 
God behaved in an older dispensation, another period of time. And now we're in a new dispensation and, and God doesn't act that way anymore. So then, of course, they're left with a God who changes, which is infinitely more troubling. Other Christians, confused and uncertain, have tried to make a distinction between what God does and who he is. Oh, he does punish evil, but he's not a wrathful God. Or he does act in vengeance, but he's not vengeful per se. And all of this seems very confusing. As if the infinite God needs finite beings like you and me to try to exonerate him. As if he's on trial. Here's a very simple principle that faithful readers of the Bible must understand. And that is that if God is the author of the scriptures and God is a truth teller, when he says something about himself that you do not understand or you have a hard time grasping, let's be really clear, the problem is not with God. It is with the finite fallen creatures and their faculties of reason. So you and I must be content to be troubled by aspects of God's character that will at times blow your mind or are in fact at times far above what you can comprehend. Why? Because there's always more notes to be played in the song. There's more to be said. And when you study the Bible from start to finish, you get a full orbed, balanced view of God that you would otherwise never come to on your own conception. The whole scripture reveals who God is. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Ancient people created gods in their own image. And so those gods were rash, and they were violent, and they were inconsistent, and they were explosive and fickle. Eighty years ago, when comic book writers began to create beings that were superhuman characters, what you now call superheroes, they created them out of a false conception of man's inherent goodness. And so superheroes were all good. And the villains of the story were all bad. Eighty years later... Those same superheroes, when they're displayed in comics and movies, are dark and complicated and they're troubled beings because they are made in the image of how modern man sees himself. There's an 80 year difference in the characters, both created by man. So Yahweh is neither pagan God nor superhero. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? See what the text says. He's God and and no one else is. And when you encounter aspects of God's character that are difficult to comprehend or they trouble you, remember that you see his character through the imperfect lens of your flesh and your own finite mind. You and I desperately need every aspect of God's character. 
even if we don't fully comprehend that. For instance, if this was not a God who punished evil, then where in the world would you be in this world with a sense of justice? The world would be utterly and completely devoid of it. So if God doesn't pour out his wrath upon sin, if he doesn't pour out his wrath upon unrepentant sinners, then you have absolutely no answer to evil. In fact, the Bible offers the only answer that is satisfying in the least. More than that, Christian, if God's wrath on sin troubles you, then the cross really makes no sense. You see, without the cross, then God is just either unable or unwilling to deal with sin. The Bible teaches us that God is so serious about sin that he put his own son to death in place of you in place of me if there are other other aspects of God's character that trouble you I want you to be content to be troubled it only means that you do not know him as well today as you will one day know him so patiently sit in faith and believe him to tell you the truth in his word and keep reading the scriptures and keep worshiping him as he has summoned you to do and you will eventually come to understand and maybe not everything but you will in the new heavens and the new earth. Salvation always demands a response. We're called to worship. We must be content to be troubled. And finally, we're confident in the future. Verses 13 through 18, suddenly there is a shift and the song turns back to personal, but it's also future focused. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And all of the verbs in the next five verses are what is called past perfect. And that is that they are translated as if they happened in the past, but they are talking about events that are coming in the future. And that's why the verb tense here is sometimes called the the prophetic perfect. Verse 13, you have guided them. I mean, certainly God has in the past guided them. But you also know from verse 13 that God is taking them to a place of his holy abode that is up to Zion, that is the promised land. And then as if sitting in the promised land and looking back, the song visualizes all of the surrounding nations trembling at the reputation of Yahweh. Verse 16, while a procession of former captives now freed marches to the city of God till the people pass by whom you have worshiped and you're made to picture all of the nations of the world trembling let them go ahead pass through our land and the song concludes with a fulfillment of everything that was promised to Abraham look at verse 17 You will bring them in and you will plant them on your own mountain, the place of the Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Hebrew people looked in faith and they sang about events that were going to happen as if they'd already happened. Because that's how certain they were. That God would do what he said he'd do. He's powerful like no one else. 
On this day, on this side of the Red Sea, in this moment, they rested in faith on the exact same promises that you and I rest on today in Christ. God will provide for his people a final, permanent, secure home. God will dwell with those people in that secure home forever. And he will reign with and for his people in this new city. And so we sing. They were confident in the future because they said this God holds the future. And we are even more confident today about the future because we now understand how God secures the future. That the song of justice in the song of Moses was poured out upon a lamb so you need to know that you don't actually encounter the song of Moses again until Revelation chapter 15, where the song of Moses is merged with another song, and it's called the song of the Lamb. Not Exodus 15, but Revelation 15. John saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and then he saw God's people by the sea holding harps in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And listen to the song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and magnify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 15, a prophetic perfect. And so that deliverance of the song that was sung on this side of the Red Sea is and was but a foretaste of the greater song that will be sung in the new heavens and the new earth when it's not just the ethnic Hebrew people, but it is all the nations of God's people gathered on this side, a new side of the new heavens and the new earth. The saints who are saved sing in eternity because salvation demands a response. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we long for that day. We look forward to that day. And we give you thanks that what we have enjoyed this morning in worship is a sample, but a foretaste of the greater day. When we will live as we were meant to be living, and we will enjoy a relationship with you that we were meant to have from all eternity, and we will with boldness and confidence declare the praise of the one who alone is glorious and worthy of praise. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.